So let me pray for us, and then we will walk through the beginning of John chapter 8 this morning. Um, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment this morning. Lord, I pray you'd sharpen our minds. Help us to be good thinkers. Help us to reason well. Lord, may we be in awe of your kindness, your faithfulness, that you've given us an amazing book that is trustworthy. So help us to go down the right path today. Help us to strengthen our faith. Lord, I pray that today would not be a day where people would um, begin to doubt you and to doubt your word, but I pray it would be the opposite. I pray that they would uh, grow in, in their strength and, 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 and trust in your word more today. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's start in John chapter 7, not 8, because you'll see John chapter 7, verse 53. It's kind of put there in John 8, if you notice that. So if you're looking down, you may even see some brackets. You guys see that? You with me yet? John 7.53 says this, they went each to his own house. Um, If you remember last week, there's this... um, Jesus and the Pharisees, they were kind of going back and forth with each other, and so the they here are the Pharisees. Nicodemus was in that little group there. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said as a, as a test, to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What's more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So now, many many of you, you've... You're probably familiar with the arguments of this passage. But if not, I know we have some newer, newer Christians with us this morning. Maybe you're new to the faith. So let me just make sure everyone is on the same page. Most of your Bibles, if you're looking down, you, you have this passage. And it's got these brackets. Um, and there's some qualifier, maybe before chapter 7, verse 53. Like I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which says this. It has these brackets. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include... John 7.53 through 8.11. I'm guessing most of your Bibles have something similar to this. So we have these brackets around this section, and, and this section comes with this qualifier also in brackets about this passage not being in the earliest manuscripts, yet it's still here in our Bible. So how did it get here? Well, the first printed Greek New Testament came in 1516, by a guy named Erasmus. This text was used for most Protestant translations, which include the King James Version. 
But since 1516, we've found thousands and thousands of new manuscripts, and the date of some of these manuscripts date farther back than what Erasmus used. So these discoveries have forced translators to make some difficult decisions. One of the more controversial ones is the ending of the Lord's Prayer. Now, some of you, you know, you know these arguments. You've heard these discussions, but maybe some of you have not. Most of you, you probably learned the Lord's Prayer from the King James Version, right? I mean, it just kind of flows. It's very poetic and beautiful. And the end of Matthew 6 of the Lord's Prayer says, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You, you've heard that. You're familiar with that. But if you would look in a, you know, the NIV, English Standard Version, New American Standard, that part is not in there. Um, and this is why a lot of the, if you're a King James only person, this is why you get upset with these other translations. You know, you're taking out parts of God's word. This is the same for the true of the end of Mark's gospel. In the Mark's gospel, if you flip there in Mark 16, there's a section that has these brackets say these, this section is not included earliest manuscripts. So, and that's why, you know, John's gospel is the same way. So, is our passage this morning an original part of John's gospel? I would say almost certainly the answer would be no. Now, could this story be true? Did this event actually happen? I think it's highly probable. I think when you read it, it sounds like this is something that Jesus would have done. It definitely sounds like something the Pharisees would have done. And so there are several reasons why many believe it's not original. First, it's absent from the best and earliest Greek manuscripts. This would be like if you're playing a telephone game. You've played the game, you know, where you whisper in somebody's ear, and then they whisper, and they go around, and by the time you get to the end, it's something ridiculous, because there's some middle school boy who changes the answer to something silly, just to be funny, you know what I'm talking about? And the way you know what's... What's the best would you go back to the original one? Who was the one who was conveying that first story? So the earliest one, you know, doesn't include. So, you know, we don't have the number one. Okay, that's the original, the autograph. We don't have any of the number one. But maybe we have like three, four, and five. So three, four, and five say something different than six, seven, and eight. The one that would be more trustworthy would be three, four, and five. So... It's absent from the, from the best and earliest Greek manuscripts. Second, the early church fathers do not include this part when they're commenting on John 7 and John 8. It's like they just leave it out. And it's amazing. Why would they just leave it out? Third, there's no Eastern church father that quotes this prior to 10th century. And then lastly, there are times when this passage, and you can see this like in my Bible, when I look down, there's a footnote that you will find this, there's been manuscripts where this John 8 section is found in Luke's gospel or found in other parts of John's gospel. So you can see that if you were to take out um, this passage from John 8, the text actually flows quite naturally from 752 to 812. If you look back to 750, it reads this. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no, one, um, that no prophet arises from, from Galilee. Then you see in 753 that they, each one goes to their own home. Chapter 8, verse 9, they all go one by one. So everybody, everybody's leaving. And then all of a sudden in John 
8.12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if chapter 8, that 1 through 11 is there, everyone leaves, they go home. When Jesus says, you know, whoever you, without sin, throw the first stone, they all go one by one. Then in verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them. Who's the them? They all left. So it seems like it flows better coming from the context of 752. So this is where then my brain and maybe your brain begins to go. If this section was meant to be a part of the original text, which John wrote, how then do we know that other sections of the Bible are right? Maybe some of you already don't know. And this is what I think you know, your religious studies class will begin to question, you know, begin to put on you. You know, if that part's wrong, you know, it was in there when the King James, you know, because that was the most accurate then, um, but we found many more manuscripts. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. How can you trust the other parts of the Bible? And they get you to begin to doubt God's word. So ultimately, we have an issue of reliability here. Can you trust the Bible? If you can't trust the Bible, our entire faith is rooted in this book. And if you can't trust it, then you know, what's to say you know, the other parts? And just start picking, choosing what I want. Well, I think God wants us to be Christians that use our brain. Right? He gave us a brain. He wants us to use our brain. I know that logic is becoming a lost science in our culture, but I need us to think logically this morning, all right? I know this is a different sort of world change. This is different how I normally preach. I normally don't do topical, but this is a little more topical this morning. I want us to think about the reliability of Scripture. Can you trust the Bible? So here is the so-called problem before us this morning. When we look at the New Testament manuscripts, we see about 500,000 variances from manuscript to manuscript. And this is not even including the Old Testament. This is just variances in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have about a half a million variances. So how in the world can any pastor stand up on a Sunday morning, tell you to open up your Bible and expect the people of God to trust the sacred book? The New Testament contains about 140,000 140, words in the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation. It's about 140,000 words. And yet we have around 500,000 variances among those words. So that's like two to three variances per word in the New Testament. Are you troubled yet? Are you like, why did we come to this church this morning? All the way from Pennsylvania and Florida, and we're hearing, you know, this, this guy up here talking about, can we trust the Bible? Do you feel like you've been tricked your whole life? Your grandma, your mom maybe told you, you know, believe the Bible, trust it. And now you're hearing this maybe for the first time. Now, some of you college students, you've sat in those religious studies class, and you've already had to wrestle with this. See, I would rather us have this conversation here then out of fear, we never talk about it. And then you hear this stuff on campus or at work from some atheist or from the History Channel and begin to question the Bible's trustworthiness. See, there are many who have heard this information and they walk away from their faith. I cannot believe 
The Bible has all these errors, these, you know, these variances. And they walk away. And then you have others like myself who see the evidence and are overwhelmed with how good that God has been to leave us with a trustworthy, reliable book, a book that you can stand firm on. Now, wait a second. You just said there's over 500,000 variances where the New Testament varies from manuscript to manuscript. How can you stand up there this morning and say that it's trustworthy? You sound like you're contradicting yourself. Well, it's amazing to me how people can look at the same thing and come up with two different responses. You ever notice that? You can see the exact same thing and see two different things. So let me, let me give you some examples. Here's some obstacle illusions for us. Here's the first one. Okay, you've seen this. Which line is longer? Now, many of you, you know, you've been tricked by this. What, what do your eyes tell you? Which line is longer, the top one or the bottom one? The, the top one. Your eyes go, the top one's longer. But reality, it's just the arrows that make it different. They're the same length. What about this one? Here's the next one. What do you see here? What do you see here? How many of you see the vase? The vase there in the middle, the white. How many of you see two faces kind of looking at each other? See that? We're all looking at the same picture, but some of you see different things. What about this one? Okay. How many of you see a duck? How many of you see the rabbit? You're like, oh, there, rabbit. You see that? The rabbit's ears, also the duck's beak. Let's do one more. How many of you see, like, this older lady, kind of scary, maybe? See the old lady? No? A few of you? Who see the young lady? Most of you see the young lady. So the young lady, uh, the young lady's like looking away. Her left ear would be the left eye of the old lady. The young lady's chin would be the old lady's nose. You see that now? Maybe you're starting to see it? Like, oh, there she is. We are all looking at the same thing, but you're coming away with two different responses. So it comes down to how do you in interpret these things? So I'm looking at the exact same information that these skeptics are looking at, the same thing your religious um, studies professor is looking at. They're saying the Bible is not trustworthy. I see the same exact information, and I marvel, absolutely marvel at how reliable the Bible really is. So how can this be? Well, let's first think about how the Bible has been preserved. You know, Jesus, you know, and Bruce can appreciate this as a Gideon. You know, the, the disciples, they weren't out passing little Gideon Bibles out. You know, hey, believe, you know, New Testament little Gideon Bibles. You know, the Marshall students, you know, that Gideon show up and they pass out these little Bibles. That wasn't going on in the book of Acts, okay? That's not how we got here. So the way we got here, there's no printing press when the Bible was first being produced. The printing press was invented around 1440 A.D. The printing press prior to 1440 was something or someone called a scribe. A scribe would be someone you would hire to preserve like your family's library or important documents. They were the copy machine of their day. 
And sometimes you might have a room, maybe it's an important document, you want several copies, you would hire several scribes, they would sit in a room, and you would read you know, from your original what you wanted them to copy, and like six or seven of them would be writing down what you're saying. This would be you know, printing in bulk for us. So let me go back to these variances. What are these so-called variances? One of the prominent scholars on textual criticism is a guy named Daniel Wallace. Daniel Wallace is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Brilliant man. He's carefully put these 500,000 variances into four helpful categories. So let me walk through these four real fast. The first category would be spelling differences. Spelling differences account for about 75% of those 500,000 variances. So three-fourths of them come down to spelling differences. So imagine there's seven or eight of you, and I'm reading, several of you writing down. So these words would be like there, there, and there, two, two, and two. Like you look at it and you go, well, I know what you meant. Um, just read Facebook. You see it like you, you kind of laugh when people make spelling errors like the there mistake, and you're like, ha-ha, especially when they're making some intellectual argument, and they make that, and they mess up with like there, and you're like, ha-ha, and you just want to correct them. Um, you know, a word like this. So in Greek, to save space, they would just put all the, word, the letters together. It wouldn't even be spaces. Imagine how challenging that would be. That would be like looking at this word. So in Greek, you'd see this at the top. And what are you, what, what's the word? Is it nowhere or now here? You see how the space changes that? And so that's some of the variances that we're talking about here. So how do we know, for example, like that? Would it be nowhere or now here? Well, you would just read the context and you'd be able to figure it out. So that's what a lot of these are. Like a verse, and this is not on your screen, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. One Greek letter distinguishes between these two things. And so sometimes you will find this translated this way. We were gentle among you. Okay. Sometimes you will find it translated this way. We were little children among you. So which is it? Is it we were gentle among you? We were little children among you. The difference between those two phrases is one Greek letter. So you would read the context. All of um, verse 7 says this. Well, the latter, the latter half says, like a nursing mother taking care for her own children. So if you had put that together, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, or we were little children among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That doesn't make any sense. So you would know that we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That makes the most sense. Use your brain. Yes, there's a variance, but it's not one that, that, that shakes you know, the reliability of the Bible. This is a scribal error that those who were translating... They, they, you know, this guy made a mistake where this guy didn't, but those are different. So which one's right? Which one's wrong? You look at the context. So that's the first category, spelling, 75%. The second category of variances are synonyms. These account for 20% of the variances. So sometimes a scribe would copy the word Lord, where another scribe might have written the name Jesus. Is that a difference? Absolutely. The word Lord is obviously different than the word Jesus. But you could see how a scribe listening, writing these things down, could make that mistake. In his mind, the two words mean absolutely the same thing. 
Lord, and Jesus. The third category involves wording that is meaningful but not viable. This is 4%. Okay? Example of this would be like gospel of Christ um, is found replaced with the gospel of God. Again, this would technically be a variance, but it, would not, it, it wouldn't be like the type of variance that would shake your faith. Um, you see gospel of Christ in one, in one verse, in this manuscript, the same verse as the gospel of God. You, you're, you're probably not, you probably just read it and not think twice about it. So if you take the first three categories, spelling variances, synonyms, and wording that is meaningful but not viable, if you take just those three category of variances, you're talking about 99% of all the variances fall into one of those three categories. Okay, so 500,000 variances, 99% of them fall into those first three categories. So how does that make you feel? I feel pretty good. That's pretty good. Out of all the variances, because we have so many manuscripts, 99% of them are either spelling issues, synonyms, or words that could be interchangeable, you know, meaningful but not viable. The last category covers less than 1% of the 500,000 variances. Um, the fourth category it's, involves wording that is meaningful and viable, and this is less than 1%. Example of this would be like Revelation 13, 18. You can turn there and just listen. You're familiar with this if you've grown up in church. Revelation 13, 18 says, Let the one who has insight calculate the beast's number, for it is the number of man, and his number is what? 666. Did you know that the oldest manuscript that we have today actually says, and his number is 616? Isn't that interesting? It's possible that the number of the mark of the beast could really be 616. So this whole time you're looking for 666, and it could be 616. How many times have you bought groceries, and it rung up to be 616, and you didn't think anything about it? But when it's 666, you're like, uh, let me get a pack of gum. I don't want that. But just, just stay with me for a moment. What if it was 616? Would that change any doctrine at all? Would that change how you live out your faith? Absolutely not. It doesn't shake any doctrine. It's important to note that none of the 500,000 variances have any doctrinal ramifications. Not one. So why do we have so many variances? We have so many variances because we have so many manuscripts. The Bible you're holding this morning is not the original version. In fact, we don't have any of the original autographs today. If we had just one copy then we would not have any variances. Does that make sense? Like if you wrote a letter to someone and you gave it to that person, there would not be any variances because it's the only copy in the, in the, you know, in, in the world known. But if somebody else copied it, then there would be a chance that they copied it wrong. And so we don't have any of the original versions. We have copies of copies. The reason we have a lot of variances is because we have a lot of manuscripts. We have over 5,500 Greek manuscripts. But we don't just have Greek manuscripts. We also have over 20,000 handwritten manuscripts from various languages of the New Testament. Um, here's a picture. Hopefully this will come up. This is something called P52. Can you see that? 
This was purchased on the Egyptian market in 1920. And what you're looking at today is the oldest picture of something we have from the New Testament. This, this dates back to around 120 A.D. This is pretty cool. This is amazing. So around 20, 120 A.D., this fragment has been dated back to. So in 1920, if you opened up your Bible in 1920, it read the same as this manuscript that we see here. Meaning that from 120 A.D. to 1920, it's a long time, the text hadn't changed. It was trustworthy. P52 is a fragment from John 18, which we will get to in several weeks. John 18, verse 31 through 33 says this. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? That is what's written on P52. Pretty incredible, right? It's pretty amazing. We have a text from early second century. But even if you were to destroy every one of those 20,000 manuscripts, we would not be left without a witness. The early church fathers, they, they, they wrote a lot um, commentaries on New Testament. So men like Ignatius, Polycarp, if you were to take just what they wrote about the New Testament, not, not, not what they, scribes had copied and given them, but what they wrote about, you know, what they had. So just their notes. If you were to take just their notes, their commentaries, where they quoted New Testament, it would be, it would be sufficient to reconstruct the entire New Testament. This is amazing what we have. We have a wealth of, of, uh, of scripture for us. If we were to take just the second century fragments, we would have three of the four gospels, nine of Paul's letters, um, Acts, Hebrews, Revelation. Over 43% four, uh, of the New Testament is found within 100 years of the completion of the New Testament. That's amazing. So, Skeptics will lean on these 500,000 variances and get you to doubt, like it's the final nail in the coffin. But they will forget to ever mention that we have over 20,000 manuscripts of just the New Testament. Maybe this morning, one of the questions going through your mind is, well, why didn't God, you know, if he's all-powerful, why didn't he just preserve the original? You know, this autograph, why don't we just have what John wrote I think that's a fair question. And I think you should get there. You should ask that. If God is good, if he doesn't want us to doubt his word, why didn't he just give us these autographs? Why didn't he just preserve what John sat down and wrote? I can think of a couple reasons why maybe God chose not to give us originals. Here's, here's my best thought. One, just knowing how we are, we would make idols out of those, wouldn't we? I mean, think if we had... John's gospel that John wrote. It would be in some museum. It would be behind glass under 24-hour surveillance. I think God didn't want his word to be behind a glass on display. He wanted his word to be on your lap, being stored in your heart. 
The second reason why I think God didn't preserve the original is so that the Bible would be preserved. Let me say that again. That may have been confusing. I think God did not leave us with the original autograph so that the Bible would be preserved. Let me explain. Which would be easier, to make changes to one document or 20,000 manuscripts? See, did you realize how hard it would be for someone to change the Bible today? You know what I mean? Like if someone just said, hey, that's not what John says. This is what John says. You're like, no, it's actually not what John says. But if we just had one copy and it was locked up in the Vatican, Tom Cruise could just set up some Mission Impossible, sneak in, change the text to support Scientology, and we'd have no way of knowing if the text had been altered. Just one. So far, I've only addressed the reliability of the New Testament. I just want to say, like, I believe the entire Bible is God's word to us, and it's completely trustworthy. Let me give you a few reasons why you can rest this morning that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. I'm pulling these from a book called Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. Um, but for time's sake, I've chosen just to share three. Okay, so let me give you three. First, it's logical. The Bible itself makes claims of being God's word. 2 Timothy 3, verse um, 16 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Titus 1, verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Okay, so the logic would go like this. If God cannot lie, and these are his words, then therefore these words have to be true. Second reason, it's historical. We have so many manuscripts. This has allowed God to protect us from being deceived. So like Mormons, you study Mormons. Mormons believe that Joseph Smith received these golden plates from God. The Bible had been distorted. There's all these variances. It's trouble, troubling. So God gave Joseph Smith these golden plates. And, go, and jo, Joseph Smith gave these people what the, what the golden plates said. But guess what? No one's ever seen the golden plates except for Joseph Smith. So the entire faith is based off of the trustworthiness of Joseph Smith. There's no copies of the copies. Islam is similar. In the 8th century, they may regret doing this. I don't know. But in the 8th century, um, Uthman destroyed all other copies of the Quran because of their variances. They had variances as well. And so they thought, let's just... Which one's the best? Let's get rid of all the others, and we'll just have zero variances. This would be good. Well, that was great until other copies are discovered. Like in 2009, there's a Quran, fragments of the Quran was discovered in Yemen and contained variances from the Quran that had been preserved, which, was, which is right. See, more and more fragments continue to be found. Um, and just in the last few years, we have found at least seven fragments from the second century. This is when I, I get geeked out. when the, there's, there's one that they thought was from the first century. They're still not sure. It looks like it was probably more second century. But think if we had a first century fragment of New Testament. How cool would that be? I mean, you're talking about like possibly eyewitnesses of Christ writing, pinning these things. 
We, we now have as many as 18 New Testament manuscripts from the second century, as I mentioned, possibly one from the first. Altogether, more than 43% of the New Testament verses are found in these 18 manuscripts from the second century. Then you got things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. You familiar with those? They were found in 1946 in some caves in, at the Dead Sea. And the, date, the dating of these documents date prior to the time of Christ. And so just think about that. So in the New Testament, when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, we know those scriptures have not changed because the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1946 and date prior to the birth of Christ in the same scriptures that Jesus is quoting. That's pretty cool. So Jesus is quoting these scriptures and, you know, the first century, all these things that we have going back to the time of Jesus, they've been preserved. 1946 found these Old Testament scriptures from prior to Jesus's time. So we know that from 1946 to the time of Jesus, these things haven't been changed. Incredible. Third reason you can trust the Bible is prophetic. There are hundreds of prophecies all throughout the Bible. There are over 60 prophecies that pertain to a man being the Christ. Like in order to be the Christ, he had to fulfill these things, 60 of them. The odds of one man fulfilling only um, eight of these major prophecies, it would be one in tenth to the seventeenth. And that would look like this. Okay, that's the odds. Okay, that would be like me playing in the NBA would be greater, greater odds than that. Okay? You're like, there's no way. Yes. Just maybe move one zero. That's it, though. This, um, a mathematician said this would be the same way. You could visualize this. The odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies, eight major prophecies in the Old Testament, would be the same as you take a silver dollar and you lay it flat in the state of Texas, okay? Then you fill up the state of Texas. You put silver dollars side by side to where it fills in the state of Texas, the great state of Texas, by the way, okay? Big Massive place, right? Now you take that and you stack them two feet deep. So not only are they you know, laying flat on the ground throughout all of Texas, now those silver dollars are two feet deep. You take another silver dollar, you paint it red, and you just give that thing a good chuck, okay? Stir it in somewhere. You send someone out there blindfold, spin them around and let them just wander around for days, wandering around through Texas, and they just get one pick, that would be that. Do you think you would ever find that red silver dollar in two feet deep silver dollars in the state of Texas? That would be the odds of one man fulfilling eight of those 60 prophecies. Jesus fulfilled all 60. Okay, we have a wealth of evidence that attests to the validity and reliability of Bible. Far more than any other book of antiquities. Have you ever heard anybody ever doubt Jesus, uh, Julius Caesar? Oh, I can't trust in him. He's born 100 B.C., okay, dictator of Rome. Earliest copy of his life is found 900 A.D. And we only have 10 manuscripts of Julius Caesar. So about 1,000 years have elapsed between his birth and the earliest copy of his life, 100 B.C., 900 A.D., 
and we have around 10 manuscripts. Whereas with Jesus, we have manuscripts within less than 100 years from eyewitnesses. And we have thousand year, uh, thou, thousands of manuscripts attesting to his life. There is no need for you to be afraid to talk about this stuff. I think far too many churches and Christians and parents were just afraid to have these kind of conversations. We don't want to make anyone stumble. We don't need to be afraid because our God has given us a holy book. I pray that you're encouraged this morning how beautiful this book truly is. Are there variances? Absolutely. Praise God. That just means that we can be sure that you're holding in your hand what God intended us to have. We can rest assured that we have the word of God. So now, quickly, what do we do with John 8? I think we can appreciate the truths we find in it. Whether it's authentic or not, um, you know, I, I believe, you know, this could be one of those stories that John saw, it happened, and, and you know, somehow it got in there. I don't know. But does it sound like, does this sound like something Jesus would have done? You know, the, the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus, but notice that the woman was not their prey. Jesus was. Even though they brought her to Jesus so that she could be stoned to death, it doesn't seem like they were really wanting to pummel her with stones, but they were simply using her as bait to get to Jesus. They were hoping Jesus would violate the law of Moses. They knew he was a friend of sinners. He would not want to stone the lady to death, but if he didn't, then he would be breaking the law of Moses, and then he had him. They would be like, aha, you don't keep the law of Moses. Jesus then bends down and writes something on the ground. Now, there have been many guesses of what Jesus has written on the ground. Did he, first time, did he write down the first, the, the, the first five commandments? And then the next time he wrote the second five? We, we don't know what he wrote. Did he write a, a line in the sand, like, don't cross this, that's kind of what you're doing? We, we, don't, we just don't know. Jesus replies, he that is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast the stone. You see, Jesus, he also knows the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. See, this was how the stoning procedure should take place. The one who was caught in the act of adultery, the one who caught someone in the act of adultery, they would be the first one to cast the stone. That's from Deuteronomy 13.9, Deuteronomy 17.7. So Jesus just quotes them scripture right back. So there's another problem here. The law of Moses says that both parties involved in the adultery are to be stoned together. But you notice there's no man mentioned here in this story, right? Where's the dude? And so one by one, they all go away. But notice how Jesus, he, he doesn't condone or condemn. See, that, that, that's the, this is the verse that I think people outside of Christianity, they, they might, the world might quote from this passage. You know, who are you to throw a stone? You kind of heard that, maybe? Because the world would say this. You are free to go, which is what Jesus said. That's not all of what Jesus said. But the world would say, you are free to go, or it's not a big deal. Who's here to judge you? But when we're in Christ, we are not condemned. So the world would say, you are free to go. But the Bible says, you're free to go 
So go and what? Sin no more. See, when we're in Christ, we're not condemned. God himself will not pick up the stone. And this is a picture of the gospel. We are free from the penalty of sin, and we are also free from the power of sin. We are not the same. We have been changed. We are to go and sin no more. See, Jesus levels the playing field by quietly making each man admit his own sin. That's essentially what they're doing. They're like, well, I've sinned, so I can't throw the first stone, so I need to walk away. Jesus gets them to admit their sin, and then instead of condemning her, he forgives her. And not only does he forgive her, he also transforms her. But notice how he doesn't give her a license to keep on sinning, but rather he gives her a reason to stop sinning. See, you need to remember that your sin never surprises Jesus. When he took your sin on himself as he hung on the cross, he bore the judgment for every single action, attitude, and thought you've ever had. See, your sin can't surprise him because he's already received the punishment for it. And as a Christian, you are free from condemnation. Jesus paid it all. Rest in his grace. Rest in his goodness. Rest in his forgiveness. Jesus won't stone you. So don't stone yourself. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Let that truth motivate you to live a life of purity this week. Strive to sin no more. But if you sin this week, know that you have a mediator, Christ, who intercedes on your behalf. Come to him, repent of your sin, pursue holiness once again. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Let's pray together as the band comes back up and continues to lead us in worship. Um, Lord, thank you for this morning that we have a book that we know exactly who you are, what you expect from us. You left us with a book that we know how to become a Christian, how to live as a Christian, how to grow as a Christian. And Father, I pray that we would stand firm on your word. That when maybe Satan whispers in our ear, maybe there's others that Satan might use to get us, to try to get us to doubt your word, or may we cling fast to your word, that we know that you have left us with a word that is reliable and true and trustworthy. So we thank you for it. Lord, may we, uh, may we just treasure you as we read your word. May it give us a deeper desire uh, to serve our community, uh, to love others better, uh, and ultimately to know you better. Lord, may you be our treasure. We pray all this in Christ's name.